This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Uh, another case of, uh, well, the criminal uh, justice system and how it's working in the case of the Tess Ritchie murder. Uh, and the accused in this case is this uh, Kaylin Schlotter, who was testifying today at uh, the court. Uh, and some of the testimony, I guess, uh, was also uh, referring to his uh, cellmate in jail. I wanted to really find out exactly how this works, because in certain cases, I think it was Harvey Weinstein, uh, he did not testify. The defense chose to uh, not put him on the stand. So uh, wherein lies the difference, the distinction? Let's find out from our own expert in the field. Lawrence Benelli, as a Toronto criminal lawyer, has joined the Oakley Show. Lawrence, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing great, John. It's always a pleasure to be with you. All right. Uh, so help me out here. I guess I was just kind of curious. This guy was uh, testifying earlier today uh, about the murder of Tess Ritchie, for which he stands accused. Uh, this is going back to uh, November 25th of 2017. So, and he's pleaded not guilty to first degree murder, by the way. Uh, why is he testifying? Is that mandatory? It is uh, not mandatory, John. In fact, uh, because what we call the golden thread that runs through the criminal law consists of the proposition that anyone who is accused is presumed innocent, he does not know he does not have to testify, and an accused cannot be forced to testify uh, at his own trial. So, for example, the Crown could not subpoena an accused to uh, give evidence at his own trial. In any criminal case, an accused has to make three important decisions. One, which lawyer to hire. Two, how to plead, guilty or not guilty. And three, whether he will take the stand. Now, of course, the last two of those, which is to say the plea and the decision to take the stand, will all be made in consultation with and based on the recommendation of the lawyer. But the decisions are ultimately those of the accused. There are lots of reasons to not put an accused in the stand, and there are lots of reasons to put an accused in the stand. The approach that I've taken in 30 years is, will my client help uh, his own defense by taking the stand in any way that goes beyond saying the words not guilty? If the answer is no, then I don't put him in the stand. But if the answer is yes, then I will put him in the stand. In this particular case, I would imagine that one of the important considerations is the feeling by defense counsel that the jury wants to hear from the accused. Uh, It cannot be held against the accused that he didn't testify, but the jury wants to hear from him, wants to hear his version of events, wants to hear him tell his story, and then the jury will decide what happened. The accused doesn't have to prove anything. The question in the criminal, any criminal trial is whether the Crown has proved the essential elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And the purpose of calling an accused to the stand is to allow the jury to see if there is reasonable doubt. That's how uh, it works, basically. All right. And so uh, calling the accused to the stand, as you say, rightly, it's a jury trial. And so these are people who might be susceptible to uh, reading body language or, you know, a person's likability, their credibility and so on and so forth. So that's all part of the strategy. The defense has to uh, make that determination on uh, and they've greenlit the guy to go up. Right. 
Right. And and I can tell you, it's a brutal decision to make. It's really difficult because the one thing you don't want to do as a defense lawyer is put the client into the stand and just watch him fill in the gaps in the Crown's case, basically fixing any deficiencies in the Crown's case and guaranteeing a conviction. It's a very difficult decision to make. And uh, that's what they're doing here. So uh, does the defense lawyer then, uh, and I'm guessing it's a team, do they pretty much coach the accused? Well, the the answer to that is depends what you mean by the word coach. Certainly they've prepared him. Certainly they know the defense does what his answers are going to be to all reasonably foreseeable questions. But just so that uh, everyone is clear, as a lawyer, neither I nor this, this uh, man's defense team or any other lawyer are allowed to encourage or permit or anything like that, any witness to lie. We cannot do that. We cannot put in evidence that is that we know is false or have reason to believe is false. So yes, they've prepared them for the process. And by the way, the Crown does the exact same thing. They prepare their witnesses. I won't call it coaching, um, but they do it because most people have never gone to court. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. It, it can be bewildering. It can be confusing and intimidating. And you certainly want the witness to be comfortable enough so that they tell their story truthfully, accurately, and completely. So, yes, in that sense, there has been preparation, but not in the sense of uh, uh, teaching a potential witness how to lie. All right. When I said coached, uh, I obviously misspoke. So in preparing the witness here, the accused, uh, would it be something like a mock trial, for example? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, I do that quite often. Uh, um, I put a client through a mock cross-examination, uh, try and have some other lawyer uh, play the crown and cross-examine him. And then I might have two or three people sitting in the room uh, and saying what they think at the end of the exercise. It prepares the client or any other witness for the process to some extent. There's never complete preparation. You can't anticipate everything that'll happen uh, in a courtroom. Trials are living, breathing things, and they have a life of their own. So you can only do so much, but it's important to give a potential witness that comfort level uh, with, with the process. Right. And as you say, you've got other people there who are sort of monitoring the situation. It sounds like a focus group to me. Uh, Lawrence Ben-Eliezer was with us, a Toronto criminal lawyer on the case of the Tess Ritchie murder trial, who's accused uh, Kaylin Schlatter. Uh, he's been uh, accused uh, of killing her in the first degree. He's pleaded not guilty to that. I'm kind of curious about something else here, because uh, he had uh, a cellmate in jail awaiting trial for which, uh, you know, there are certain... Uh, evidence or testimony now surfacing in this case. I mean, when you've got a cellmate, how is that not entrapment in a certain sense where you're divulging certain things or that person is prodding and extracting almost a confessional from you? Isn't that entrapment? Entrapment is a very specific legal concept. It is basically an agent of the state getting, inducing an accused to do something that he would not otherwise do. 
So an easy example is uh, an undercover police officer absolutely haranguing someone into into selling drugs, and the guy sells drugs and then gets arrested. Uh, arrested. So that is a ridiculous example of entrapment. This, if this jailhouse informant was not asked by anyone to do this, and he just did this on his own, then the first problem is he's not an agent of the state. Secondly, I don't know enough about how uh, or even if he elicited this, so this confession. I mean, we don't know if that actually happened. Uh, but if it did happen, then it depends. I mean, if he, if he asked him one time, listen, buddy, just between you and me, did you do this? And the accused confessed, that's not entrapment. He, he, he freely and voluntarily gave his, uh, gave his information, and there's certainly no expectation of privacy in that scenario. So I don't think entrapment qualifies because, it's, uh, it's, like I say, it's a very specific legal concept. And unless certain items are present, uh, it's not entrapment, and the evidence is admissible. Finally, got to ask, I mean, uh, the rap is first degree. Uh, usually that involves premeditation, doesn't it? I mean, if this was a case where, uh, you know, a spontaneous fit of peak and anger resulted in the strangulation, uh, would that still be first degree? No. Um, there's, there's three kinds of homicides uh, under the criminal code. There, are, there is first-degree murder, which, as you've correctly, as always, uh, described as premeditated. Then there's second degree, which is also premeditated, but the level of or the amount of premeditation is much smaller. So it's a decision that's made in the spur of the moment, uh, uh, in the two-minute peak of rage. That could be um, uh, second-degree murder. And then Every other kind of homicide is any illegal act causing death, uh, which would be uh, manslaughter. So, for example, two guys get into a fight uh, on the street. One guy throws a punch. It's the only punch thrown. But the other person falls backwards, cracks open their head on the sidewalk and dies. That would qualify as a manslaughter, even though there was no intention to kill. It's an illegal act leading to death. So the difference between first and second degree murder is the amount of premeditation, and that will lead to a different parole eligibility period. So for first degree, it's 25 years minimum, and for second degree, it's less. All right. Uh, I guess the distinction there is that, you know, this seemed like, according to all of the accounts, to the point where, uh, you know, the video supports that these people met up in the gay village, wee hours of the morning, went down an alleyway, and uh, she did not come out, but he did, about 45 minutes later. Uh, I just didn't know that there would be, in that timeline, uh, enough premeditation. So I, I'm not exactly clear on what is necessary as a threshold to say, uh, yeah, that counts as first degree because it's very, very much premeditated versus something uh, a little more spontaneous. i got to leave you on that note, though, Lawrence, and I appreciate it. We're watching this case, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it again before too long. Just quickly, John, the answer to the question you just asked will surely come out during cross-examination by the Crown. All right. Uh, a good, succinct answer. Thank you for it. As always, a pleasure. Lawrence Ben-Eliezer, Toronto criminal lawyer. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. 
I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.